Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In this episode, Convention of States President Mark Meckler, speaking to a group in New York, tells the story of why he founded Convention of States. So first, let me thank you for being here tonight. I have the privilege of traveling all over the country, giving speeches all over the country, working with grassroots activists all over the country, and it is truly a privilege. It's not for me about giving speeches, because I really just am a grassroots activist. My story in politics begins about eight years ago with the advent of the Tea Party movement. A lot of you were sitting in the same place I was, frustrated, angry, occasionally hurling a shoe at the television, and then this Tea Party thing happened. Rick Santelli on CNBC got on national television and in a spontaneous rant basically said that the bailout of American mortgages was un-American. I remember the first time I saw it, he said it was un-American, he said it was outrageous, he said if, if we could just pay people for doing the wrong thing, then if we paid out trillions, maybe everybody would just be rich and everything would be fine. And the anchors that were back in the studio, he was reporting from the Chicago Mercantile, the anchors back in the studio laughed at Santelli when he did this. And he got angry and he said, you're laughing at me, but I'm speaking the truth. And the traders on the floor behind him applauded. And they mocked the traders and said, oh, these guys are just doing whatever you say. And Santelli got angry with them and he said, these are great American people who work hard for a living. These are the kind of people I'm talking about. And he talked about the un-Americanism of awarding people benefits for doing the wrong things. Taking money from hardworking taxpayers who could pay their mortgages, who didn't get in too deep, who were being responsible and making them pay the debts of others. I saw that, somebody sent me a clip of that and I remember sitting at my desk, I'm an attorney, I was uh, at practice from home, I was sitting at home at my desk and I remember pounding on my desk and saying, yeah, I mean, that's what I think. I feel exactly like this guy. And unbelievably, it wasn't Fox News. Right? So that made it something different and something special. It was a moment that I think will be remembered in American history. That spread like wildfire on the internet. Rush Limbaugh picked up the clip and started playing it. And suddenly there was a moment. There was a brush fire that had been lit across the land. And all these people started talking about the idea of holding a tea party. This goes back to uh, April, originally February, sorry, of 2009. Santelli does his rant on the 19th, on the 20th. About 20 people get together on a conference call organized through Twitter to talk about what should we do about this. I wasn't on the call. A bunch of the early adopters in the Tea Party movement were. And they decided that they should hold a Tea Party. Now, Santelli had suggested the idea of a Tea Party. He had said that he was going to hold it on the shores of the lake there in Chicago. He called for it on July 4th, a long ways in the future. But these folks felt like something was happening. It's really important in politics when a moment happens that you take advantage of that moment. And luckily, there were people who were smart enough to sense it, just grassroots activists, not professional political folks. And they decided in that moment to hold a Tea Party protest when nobody knew what it meant a week later all across the country. So literally, this is the very first Tea Party protest. Now, most people don't know about this protest, actually. It took place February 27, 2009. I heard about the idea on the 21st. I did the appropriate thing for a guy who's been ver married for a very long time. I asked my wife's per uh, permission to participate. <laughs> She's from Boston. She liked the idea of a tea party. So we held our event down in Sacramento at the state capitol. Meanwhile, around the country, 34 other people held these protests around the country. In California, as you know, is a lot like New York. It's not exactly a red state. 
So we went down to the state capitol not knowing what would happen. And it's my first political event ever. Literally, I'd never been involved in politics at all. And 150 people ultimately showed up at that event. And I went and I talked to all of them. One, because it just made me feel good to know that I was not the only crazy person in California, right? There are at least 149 others. And two, because I just wanted to know why. I knew why I was there. I was there because I didn't know what else to do. It seemed like no matter who I voted for, no matter who was in office, Washington DC got bigger and the citizen got smaller. And I felt cut off from the system, almost disenfranchised even though I voted. And so I wanted to know if other people felt the way I did. And as I walked around the people there and I talked to every single one, I met people of every race, people, we had a big fight going on in the marriage and family fight. There were gay rights activists out there. There were marriage and family folks. There were conservatives and liberals out there. And everybody was just frustrated and everybody said the same thing that I was saying, don't know exactly why I'm here, except for I don't know what else to do. This sense of despair and yet hope in that moment that this fire had been lit. So I had a great time, it was just fun. People honked at us, my folks were there, my kid, young kids were there. They were 10 and 13 at the time, we carried signs. I mean, things that conservatives don't normally do is pretty wild for us, right? Really stepping out. We almost got arrested, which was really exciting. We went home afterwards and when we got home, I started to network all over California, just looking at people's Facebook pages and trying to figure out who else did this. And I just started calling people and talking to them. I just liked people and I just wanted to know if they had as much fun as we did. And when I started calling around, I met a lot of great people who had had just as much fun as we did, different experiences in different places. And then I started getting calls from the media because apparently I had become the California Tea Party coordinator. Right? I had a title and nobody gave me that title. There was no organization. It's just that I was the guy making the phone calls. So when the reporters started calling around and saying, well, who knows about this? People started saying, well, you should call this guy, Mark Meckler. So I start getting all this attention. So I start calling around the country to find out who else in the country has done this. That's how we know ultimately 35 events, about 39,000 people came out, started networking all over the country. And what came out of that was a core group of five or six of us decided once was not enough. We didn't know what it meant, like what was exactly happening, what the Tea Party exactly was, but we knew we needed to continue it. So we decided to hold the Tea Party that most people know about, the big protest, which was April 15th, 2009. And we figured, like if we could get 39,000 people to come out on seven days notice, if we could get 35 of these events around the country, maybe we could just, to use a term, have the audacity of hope that we could get 70 of them if we had five or six weeks notice. So we chose April 15, 2009. Look, people are mad on tax day already. It seemed like a good day. So we chose that day. We put up a website, which was taxdayteaparty.com. None of us knew anything about what we were doing. Contrary to popular urban myth, the Koch brothers had nothing to do with it. I'm still waiting for the check, and it's a long time coming at this point. If any of you know them, just let them know I'm waiting for it. And we set up this website. I want you to understand how truly naive we were and that how truly grassroots this was. I am by training an internet privacy attorney. That's what I was practicing at home. I put my home phone number on the website. <laughs> I didn't know what was about to happen. What happened was it exploded. Within the first day, there were 35 tea parties listed on that website. And by the second day, it was 70. It, then it was 100 and 150 and 200 and then people from New York were calling me at three in the morning, not realizing it was California, and, and they wanted to talk about the Tea Party they had listed on the website, and it just exploded. And then 
the most miraculous thing happened, which was in my office, we got a call from Neil Cavuto's producer, which I was absolutely certain was a crank phone call because why would Neil Cavuto call us? And luckily my wife took it more seriously, called him up and Neil wanted to come to California to cover the protest. And Sean Hannity had called our Atlanta organizers and he wanted to go to Atlanta and Greta Van Susteren was gonna go to DC and you had Glenn Beck somehow fittingly wanted to go to the Alamo, right? <laughs> so that caused the thing, as you can imagine, to go crazy because Fox did something that no other network was doing, which is they covered it as news. And it was indeed news. There was an uprising taking place across America. The other networks weren't covering it and Fox was willing to cover it. The short version of a long story is it turned my life completely upside down. We ultimately had 20,000 people show up in Sacramento. It was the largest protest in the history of the California State Capitol. They closed the streets for several blocks around the Capitol. It was a completely amazing experience. And the same thing happened all over the country. In Atlanta, they had 25,000 people. DC, I think they had 8,000 people. The most amazing thing to me were in small towns where five or six or 7,000 people lived, they had 1,500 or 2,000 people come out all across the country. And when we calculated it, we called around, we tried to double verify the attendees at every event. We came up with a number of about 1.2 million people came out on that day in April of 2009. Now that's extraordinary. Did any of you go to the protests in New York? Is there anybody here that was? Thank you guys for coming out. You guys give yourselves a hand. You guys are the early adopters. Thank you. So this amazing thing happens in America and the Tea Party movement breaks out. And for me personally, what happens is it turns my life completely upside down. The media is calling, activists are calling from all over the country, what's next, what's next, what do we do? And we found the Tea Party Patriots because we didn't know what else to do. Literally, again, remember, just grassroots activists, no idea what's going on. We, we fund the group or found the group, fund the group out of our own pockets because we don't know anything about raising money. And literally over the next year and a half, I stopped practicing law and I spend every penny that I've ever saved in my entire life. And luckily I have a very supportive and patriotic wife. And my co-founders do the same. We burn through all of our money because we literally don't even know to ask for money. This is how naive we are. And ultimately, I believe that there's providential intervention. A big donor steps forward when I speak at an event and offers us enough money to keep going. We literally got to the point of the verge of bankruptcy. I remember one of the most important conversations of my life, and if you've been married long enough, you've had these conversations with your husband or wife laying in bed one night and wondering how you're gonna pay the bills, right? We've all been through rough times, and I remember saying to my wife that, you know, I don't know how we're gonna keep going with this tea party thing, because I'm not practicing law and we're not making any money. And she said, we should spend the kids' college money. That's pretty extraordinary, right? For uh, women or they are uh, security conscious and kid conscious. And she said, and I'll never forget it, she said that it's more important to have a country where it's worth our kids going to college than to have the money to send the kids to college. So I'm very, as you can tell, I'm a very blessed man. I'm married way up. So thank you. So fast forward, you know what happens with the Tea Party in 2010 because all of you come out and work like Marsha was talking about and get involved. We elect the largest swing class in the history of Congress since 1930. It's really incredible, right? It's pretty darn exciting. I was in DC that night. It was really amazing. I'll never remember it. November 10th, we had this huge party. My kids are there, my family's there. It's unbelievable as we watch the returns coming in, as we watch Congress flip, all these guys come in, they all get inaugurated. It's so exciting because everything is going to change. And then nothing changes. 
literally nothing changes. It's really important we remember this. And I, I think we don't think about this enough, and I think we let Congress off the hook. The House has the power of the purse, which means virtually nothing happens unless they spend the money on it. And what did they do with that power after 2010? Nothing. They didn't defund anything. All the stuff that they said that they were against, the illegal amnesty and everything else, they defunded nothing. They had the power to entirely defund illegal amnesty. They had the power to entirely defund Obamacare. They could have done it on their own in the House of Representatives, and they did nothing. It was pretty distressing for me as a guy who was sort of at the point of the spear of the Tea Party movement. And then I started to watch the Republican Party co-opt the Tea Party. And it was a really interesting process to be on the inside of because the Republican, the party itself had no enthusiasm and all the enthusiasm was on the outside with the Tea Party movement. So the Republicans really wanted the Tea Party and amazingly the Democrats really wanted the Tea Party to be Republican. This was really important to them, right? Because in order to demonize us, they had to make sure it was all Republican. And so I watched the movement slowly get co-opted and eaten alive by the Republican Party. I watched guys go on TV and call themselves Tea Partiers and then vote in ways that just absolutely unbelievable to me. They were not standing for the values that we stood for. They were not standing for constitutional governance, for fiscal responsibility, for free markets, right? These were the guys that we were electing, but they were not our guys when they got to Washington, D.C. So as I watched this whole thing unfold, I decided, okay, this is not the solution. This is my eighth grade civics class. I was taught you vote for the right people and if you put enough of them in office, the right things happen, but it wasn't working. And so I stepped away and I said, I'm not gonna, if it doesn't work, I'm not gonna do it. And I was getting asked this question over and over when I traveled around and spoke, what do we do? What do we do, right? That's a good rhetorical question to ask yourself if you're not involved in politics. But if you're like Marsha and you're standing up here, if you're like me and you're standing up here, you need to have answers. It's not right to come and lecture at a place like this and talk to people and say, I don't know, I have, I have no idea, but I really didn't know what to do. I founded an organization called Citizens for Self-Governance and the point of founding that organization was one idea, which is that there was something missing in our system of governance that was fundamental to the system. There was, a, there was an idea that had fallen out of favor and it was very simply the idea of self-governance, right? This idea that it's about individual responsibility, that we practice self-governance with ourselves, at home, with our families, in our community, and it come to be this generally accepted thing among Republicans and Democrats that the solutions come from the federal government. So I realized that if we could not restore this idea of self-governance into American society, that we could never be a self-governing society again, and we couldn't fix the country. I started by raising money. We gave a million dollars away to local grassroots groups to try and help the grassroots groups because the Tea Party movement hadn't done a very good job of that. And then I pa crossed paths with a guy by the name of Michael Ferris. Is there anybody in here that knows the name Mike Ferris? If you homeschooled your kids, then you owe Michael Ferris a debt of gratitude. If you know anybody who homeschooled their kids. In the 1970s, homeschooling your kids, by the way, was illegal in all 50 states in one form or another. It's hard to imagine that now. Fundamental right of parents to decide how their kids were educated have been taken over by the federal government. Ferris was a young attorney, decided that was wrong, and he decided to fix it, and he did. And that's why it's legal today. And Ferris came to me and he said this, Mark, are you satisfied with what you're accomplishing in politics? The answer was self-evident. It was no, I wasn't satisfied. And he said, there's a reason. Because what you're trying to do is put good people in Washington, D.C., and it does not matter how many people you put in Washington, D.C. You can have 60 good senators. You can have 70 good senators. 
You could have 120, 130, 150, 300 good members in the House of Representatives and you will not get the governance you want because we have a broken structure in America. We do not have a personnel problem in Washington, D.C. We have a structure problem in Washington, D.C. And this is how he explained it to me. He said, let me explain to you some of the major structural flaws that have been introduced into our system of governance. For example, and, and Marsha mentioned this, we have the 17th Amendment. The 17th Amendment provided for the direct election of senators. You guys get to vote for your senators here in this. You may not get who you vote for, but you get to vote for your senators here in the state. Same in California. Well, it wasn't intended to be that way. The founders set it up so that the state legislatures appointed their own senators. Right? The people didn't have a vote. The House was the people's house, and the senators actually represented state government in Washington, D.C. That was changed with the 17th Amendment. So what did that break? I want you to think about the incentive of a senator who works for the state legislature versus the incentive of a senator who works for the people. So a senator who now works for the federal government is paid by the federal government are they more powerful or less powerful if there's more power in Washington, D.C.? More powerful, right? Their power is in Washington. Your senator's power is not here in New York. They don't have any power in New York. Their power is in Washington, D.C. Human beings naturally, by our nature, we accrete power to ourselves. We, tr we want more power. So they are now incentivized to draw power to themselves in Washington, D.C. It's just human nature. It doesn't make them bad people. The idea that the federal government should have less power and the state government should have more power is anathema to what it means to be a senator. It broke the balance. Here's another example of why the 17th Amendment broke the balance. Anybody ever hear of an unfunded mandate? It's where the federal government says, hey, New York, you're going to do this. We're going to tell you how you do it. It's going to cost you a whole bunch of money and we're going to give you no money and we're going to give you no input on how it gets done. That does not sound like a very good deal, does it? <laughs> Right, so imagine now, your senators, by the way, vote for unfunded mandates all the time. They like them. Why do they like them? Because Washington, D.C., meaning them, get to tell you here at home what to do and how to do it and how to spend your money, your tax dollars, New York tax dollars. Right, so that's how it works. Now imagine if they work for the state legislature. Imagine a senator coming home from Washington, D.C. and going to his state legislator that he's accountable to and standing in front of that legislature and saying, I have great news. I just voted on your behalf to make you spend all kinds of money over which you have absolutely no authority, but you'll have to tax your own citizens to raise that. Right? The legislature would say, you're fired. We're going to send somebody else. The Senate was designed for a particular purpose in the United States of America. It's a really simple job. Senators were meant to say one word a lot in Washington, D.C., and that word was no. That's it. The, the federal government was going to say, we want to do this, and the Senate would say, no, you can't. That's for the states. Oh, we want to spend money on that? No, you can't. The states say you can't. We want this power? No, you can't have that. That's what the Senate was designed to do. So when we passed the 17th Amendment, we broke that balance. Let me give you another example. The federal government has its hands in everything, right? They decide what, how your car should run, what kind of gasoline you put in your car. They decide about your water systems. They decide the way this building is built and what a lot of the codes are. They decide what toilets you can put in your house, right? It's outrageous. They're involved in everything. Where is it in the Constitution that it says the federal government can tell me what kind of toilet to put in my house? I've read it a lot. I can't find that. By the way, I'm just saying we're on film, right? I admit this openly. In my office in California, I built a new office. I put an illegal toilet in my office. I am a toilet rebel. I admit that on camera. 
Well, if Mueller investigates me, I'm in big trouble now. So where does that power come from? Where did the federal government get that power? They got that power under the Commerce Clause. Commerce Clause in the Constitution says this, the federal government has the power to regulate interstate commerce. What is that? What does it mean now? Commerce today, if I ask you what commerce means and you were to look it up, basically it means business, right? If you think of commerce, you think of business. If you think of regulate, you think of a regulatory agency, big rule books, all kinds of regulations, right? But here's the deal, in 1787, it didn't mean anything like that. 1787, the word commerce actually meant the shipment of goods. If you had asked Daniel Webster, if you had asked Ben Franklin, they'd have told you to look in Webster's dictionary, and then you'd have looked it up and it would have said, commerce is the shipment of goods. Regulate meant something different too. It meant to regularize, meaning to smooth out and to make simple and easy. There's a reason for that and it's your fault here in New York. New York and New Jersey were on the verge of a military trade war over tariffs at the time of the convention in 1787. And everybody acknowledged this is ridiculous. We have to give the federal government the power to smooth out the shipment of goods across state lines. In the 1930s, in a case called Willard v. Filburn, the Supreme Court said this, when a farmer grows wheat for his own consumption, that affects interstate commerce because he's not buying wheat on the open market. In other words, not doing business in the open market is doing business in the open market, meaning everything is subject to the Interstate Commerce Clause. The Department of Energy, the Department of Education, the Department of Commerce, the EPA, all authorized under the auspices of these Supreme Court interpretations. Now, I hear a lot of people say this to me when we talk about Convention of States. Mark, here's the deal. If they would just enforce the Constitution, if they would just follow the Constitution that we have, everything would be just fine. Anybody ever hear that? I've said it myself a lot of times. They don't pay attention to the Constitution. But here's the real deal about the Constitution. I said that to Mike Ferris when he brought me this project. And he said, which Constitution are you talking about? I thought that was a really weird question. I only know about one Constitution. He said, no, no, we have two Constitutions in America. We have the one you can visit in the National Archives under glass. It's beautiful. Everybody should see it. It's really inspiring. You guys might be carrying it around in a pocket constitution, easy to understand, compact, well-written, and I think divinely inspired. And then we have the constitution under which you and I today live. That constitution, if you want to buy it, you can only get it from the government printing office. It's called the annotated constitution. The last full printing was 2,738 pages. It contains all the cases you hate. It contains that Commerce Clause case. It contains the Obergfell marriage decision. It contains Obamacare. That is the Constitution, whether we like it or not, under which we live today. And when Congress says they're following the Constitution, genuinely, they are. Because everything they're doing is within the auspices of all those decisions made by the Supreme Court. So that leads me to a question. If we don't think it's right, if we don't like what they're doing according to that constitution, what do we do about it? How do we fix it? Is electing people enough? Well, we've proven that, right? So you get the House, you get the Senate and nothing changes, and now we get the President. And I think the President is doing the best he can under the circumstances. But the circumstances are deep, and I mean the deep state circumstances, right? So I don't think they're ever gonna fix Washington, D.C. from Washington. But we have the power to do it. And this is extraordinary and untouched. It is an unmined gem in the United States Constitution. 
I'm going to go way back in history to September 15th, 1787. September 15th, I think, is the most important day in American history, primarily because on September 15th, my lovely wife was born. So I cannot forget September 15th. But also, September 15th, 1787, two days before the end of the convention, Colonel George Mason stands to address the men assembled. Remember, it's two days before the end of the convention. They've been there for months. They're tired, it's hot, they're ready to go home. And he stands and addresses the assembly and he says, we have a fundamental problem with the document we've drafted. We've given the power to the federal government to propose amendments should they deem them necessary, but we failed to give that same power to the people acting through their state legislatures. And then he asks a question, which to me resonates over two centuries later. He asks, are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? I wish we had video, you guys laughed. I bet you they laughed, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Nobody restrains their own tyranny. We have no examples of human, in human history of a government restraining its own tyranny. So he proposes this idea that we ought to give state legislatures the power to call a convention of states to propose amendments specifically to restrain the federal government. You know what the men assembled did? It's an amazing thing, because it's really unusual. Madison's notes have these words in it, nin com, which means no comment in Latin. There's no debate. There is no debate. Men who debated everything, who debated what kind of prayer should be said at the meeting, whether they should have a prayer, could they pay a preacher to come? They debated everything. They didn't debate this. And in fact, it was unanimously adopted, one of the few things in the Constitution, give us the power to do this. Why would they do such a thing? I want you to think about this. Your state legislators, our state legislators have more power than anybody else in this entire country. They have more power than the president, the courts, the Congress. They have the power to call a convention, propose amendments, and ratify amendments, thereby changing the very structure of our government. Nobody else in the country has that power. Why would the men in that room give that power to state legislators? because they knew, because most of them were state legislators or county men or on city councils, and they knew that government closest to the people was the best government. And if you read the Federalist Papers, throughout the papers, there is this phrase or phrases like this, whatever happens, we don't have to worry about it because we've given the states the power to fix it if it goes wrong. So here we are 230 plus years later. Has it gone wrong? <laughs> it's gone very wrong. We're watching what goes on in D.C. today. It's hard for me to watch the news on any given day. You know, this morning I was on uh, at noon with Neil Cavuto, and we're talking about the tax plan, right? I have trouble even talking about it. It's hard to understand what they're doing. They don't even want us to understand what they're doing. And I almost have trouble caring. That's what I said on the air today with Charlie Gasparino. It's just frustrating to watch, it's just a mess. It's worse than sausage making. It's dishonest, it's disingenuous. They know they're not fixing it for us. They know they're not dealing with the real issues facing the country, and yet they play this game on us, this kabuki theater on us. But we have the power. And so that means, to me, we have a moral responsibility that goes with that power. We have the responsibility to do something about it. You know, I have a son, he's 22 years old, he's a United States Marine, he's based at Camp Pendleton down in San Diego, California. I have a daughter at Hillsdale College, really proud of her, good conservative school, great place. Man, if you have a chance to send your kids or grandkids there, you will do the country a favor. And those kids are going to be warriors. They're both good conservative kids, they're both going to be in the fight, right? 
And so what am I supposed to say to my kids? Well, you know, we tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work, so best of luck to you guys. I can't do that. Most of us are sitting in this room, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to fix the problems facing the country. That's not good enough for us. It wasn't good enough for the founders. They were willing to shed blood. They were willing to lose their businesses. They were willing to have their families get killed to give us the liberty we have today. And they gave us this incredible gift in Article 5 and told us, you can and you will fix the country. In the debates around the Federalist Papers or around the ratification of the Constitution, it goes back and forth, but this idea that the people will fix it. You know, the founders knew that the Constitution wasn't perfect. And it's almost blasphemous to say this, I realize. But this is what they said. We've done the best we can for men living in our own time, but we expect that others who come after us will gain wisdom from experience and will better our experience. And they expected that we would come to this moment. I think they expected we would do it much sooner. I have a really vivid imagination. Sometimes I have imagined myself sitting around with the founders. My office, by the way, is in a barn out in back of my house. That's the fancy world headquarters, right? It's the only place I'm allowed to put my feet up on the table. So sometimes I'm sitting back out there and I'm imagining what it would be like to hang out with the founders now. I'm particularly fond of Benjamin Franklin because he was such a cranky, cantankerous, kind of crazy old guy. And I imagine myself complaining to Ben over a pint of ale about all the problems we're having in the country, about Obamacare, about the overreach of the federal government, about the fact that they regulate my toilet. And I imagine Dr. Franklin saying, well, what about Article 5? I mean, you guys have used Article 5, right? And imagine my embarrassment in telling him, well, no, doctor, in, in over 230 years, we just, you know, we just, we kind of haven't got around to it. And I imagine him being outraged and telling me, go, go, get away, I can't even look at you. Go do it, and then tell us how it works out. The founders expected this of us. I'm going to go to questions because I think that's the most important part. But before I do, I want to tell you my favorite story from American history. It's a story that probably most of you haven't heard. I've never seen it written in a history book, and I only learned it late in life. It's a story about a captain in the Continental Army by the name of Levi Preston. Anybody know the story of Levi Preston? I love this story. It's exemplary of the political philosophy of the American Revolution better than anything I've ever heard. So there's a historian by the name of Mellon Chamberlain, and Chamberlain is a 26-year-old school teacher traveling around the country in 1843, and he's collecting the stories of the last living Minutemen, the guys who actually fought, like at Lexington and Concord, right? And I want you to put yourself back in 1843. It's a long time after the Revolution. The last living guys are in their late 80s and early 90s. Average life expectancy was 54 for men back then, right? Not many of these guys around. And Chamberlain has the presence of mind to understand that if he doesn't collect these stories and write them down, they're gone forever. It's the last chance, right? The last living guys. And he happens across Captain Levi Preston living in North Carolina. And he asks him a series of questions. If you want to read this story, you can find it. Because Mellon Chamberlain gives this speech at the North Church in Danvers on the anniversary of the beginning of the American Revolution many years later, and the story is recounted from that telling. And Chamberlain tells about asking Levi Preston a series of questions that he had asked many men before. And he expresses Chamberlain that he so misunderstood the American Revolution and that in knowing less, he now knows so much more. And he asks this series of questions. He says, Captain Preston, when you went out to fight the Redcoats that day, what was it all about? Was it the Stamp Act? Were you so frustrated that you had to buy stamps and put them on every document and the imposition of that, ta of that tax was tyranny? And Captain Preston says, sir, I'm sure I never bought one of them. I heard Governor Bernard locked them in the armory and that's the last we heard of it. 
I heard, did you guys hear about the Stamp Act when you were growing up? That, that caused the revolution, right? Not according to Levi Preston. He says, well, was it the tax on tea? You were outraged by the high taxes on tea. And Preston says, son, I was a farmer. I lived in the country. We didn't drink tea. We drank coffee. We heard the boys dumped it in the harbor, and that was the end of it. <laughs> He's pretty blown away by this, right? He asks him, well, maybe, maybe you were reading the great revolutionary minds. Maybe you were reading Burke and Tennyson. And he says, those men you speak of, I've never heard those names. We read the Bible, the Almanac, the Psalms, but we don't know the men that you speak of. And so he goes big. Chamberlain's thinking, man, I'm striking out here. I got to ask the big question. He says, it must have been the heavy hand of British tyranny. And he says, never felt a whit of it. <laughs> I mean, these are all the things I was taught. Now, I went to school in Los Angeles. You got to forgive me. But these are the things that I was taught were the causes of the American Revolution. And so he says to Preston, well, what was it that brought you out to the field of battle that day? You were a farmer. You were not a soldier. You had a family. What brought you out to the field of battle? And Preston says this, son, when we went to face them redcoats that day, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves, and we always intended to. And them redcoats, they intended that we shouldn't. That's the whole of the matter. <clears throat> That's the whole political philosophy of the American Revolution. That is the kernel of self-governance in America, succinctly expressed not by a great speaker, not by an orator, not by a Patrick Henry, not by a warrior like Washington, or not by a strategist like Sam Adams, but by a regular person like you or me who just said, you know what? We were sick and tired of the government trying to tell us what to do. We were not going to allow that to happen. Now I ask you this, because this is the question that occurred to me. Where did that come from? Where did that come from in the American psyche? It's not normal. It's not the way humans are throughout history. There's always been strong leaders. History is a pendulum that swings from tyranny back and forth to really bad tyranny. Where did we get this idea of liberty in America? Where did that come from? What's the root of it? <clears throat> you know who I asked this question? Larry Arn from Hillsdale College. I was sitting next to him at a football game one time. And this is about a year ago. And I said, there's this really weird period in American history, Larry. I don't know anything about it. There's this period, <clears throat> excuse me, from Jamestown to the American Revolution. Anybody offhand can tell me how many years from the Mayflower Compact to the American Revolution? You nailed it. That's good. That's rare. 150 approximately. It's 158 years, right? But here's the thing. When I got asked the question, I'm not as smart as you. I had a total blank. Right? I, I don't know, in grade school, in middle school, in high school, in college, nobody taught me anything about the period from the Mayflower Compact to the American Revolution. There was zero, did nothing happen in that period? There was nothing. People came here, they all went to sleep, and five generations later we had the revolution. That's not what happened. Something had to happen in that period, right? That is the period in American history where we learned to govern ourselves. That's when we became a self-governing people. It is the most fascinating, amazing period, in my opinion, in world history. It's incredible. These people plopped on this continent far away from rulers, right? There's no monarchy. There's no strongmen. There's nobody in charge. And they figured out how to govern themselves. I think it was providential. I think they had history. I think they understood the Bible. I think that especially the Old Testament and governance in the Old Testament, all these people understood all that stuff. 
and over five generations they had learned to govern themselves. So when Levi Preston says, we had always governed ourselves and we always intended to, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his great-great-grandfather had governed themselves. The idea, the audacity that the king could tell them he could govern over them without their input was just outrageous to them. And here's the most amazing thing to me about the American Revolution, not fought over taxes, not fought over tea, not fought over the Stamp Act, not fought over tyranny, fought over an idea, incredible. Anybody ever hear of the Declaratory Acts? This is an incredible thing. This is the cause of the American Revolution. This is the pinnacle. This is the event that sparked the American Revolution and we don't know anything about it. They don't teach it to us in school. Here's what happens. After all that stuff, after the T-tax is lowered, after the Stamp Act is repealed, after all this stuff goes away, the King and Parliament say this. We, the King and Parliament, will tell you, the colonists, anything we want at any time and you have no input. You will do what we say. That is our declaration. And Sam Adams himself said, this is the line which may not be crossed. This is the line between freedom and slavery. You know what the Declaratory Act did? Nothing. There was no tax imposed. There was no military occupation. There were no rules imposed. It was an idea. This is so important. The American Revolution was fought over an idea. The idea of self-governance and self-determination. It's incredible. It's in our genetics. This is the reason today that despite the idea that the media is completely biased and tells us government's the solution, and has since at least the 60s, our anybody think our educational institutions are biased? <laughs> and how long have they been doing that for? 50, 60, 70 years, right? Forever, right? Is government biased in favor of big government? Yeah, they tell us bigger, one more dollar, one more. So we've been hearing this for decades, and yet 70% of the American people still say that the federal government is too big and does too much. That's a miracle, and that is Levi Preston speaking to us and through us over the centuries. We know that this idea of self-governance is core to who we are as a people in America. We are a people and a country founded on an idea. That's why I founded Citizens for Self-Governance, and that idea takes effect and shape today in modern-day politics through the Convention of States project. We have passed this resolution in 12 states. It gives us the power to call a convention to propose amendments to restrain federal tyranny, specifically to put fiscal limits on the federal government, to put scope and power limits on the federal government, and to impose term limits on people that should come home from Washington, D.C. Those are the three subject matter areas that are available under a convention of states. That's now passed in 12 states. It'll be pending in another probably 25 states. You have to get to 34 states, as Marsha said. There are 42 states go into session in January, and we are in the fight big time. And I will close with this. This is really important. There are people who will tell you that this is a bad idea. And I, I will entertain questions about that. We ought to talk about that, right? But I, I would open that question and answer session with this. You know, I'm not an expert on everything. I'm not the smartest guy in the room by far in any room, if there are two people in the room at least. <laughs> I do know a lot about this particular subject, but I don't know a lot about a lot. And when I don't know a lot about something, what I try to do is look to the people who I know and respect and see what they think about that thing. 
right? So I do that every day with regard to convention of states. I look out across the political landscape in America and I say, who do I respect on the conservative side or the libertarian side who supports what we're doing and who's against it? And so I'm gonna run a quick list for you. Today I spent the afternoon with Sean Hannity. Sean's a big supporter. He's going to be talking a lot about it in the new year. Mark Levin, obviously a big supporter. Rush Limbaugh, when Levin's book came out, came out in support of it. It depends where you go, on, you know, how far across the political spectrum you want to go, but you've got Governor Greg Abbott in Texas made it a priority for himself. Governor Scott Walker is a supporter. You got Marco Rubio is a supporter. Governor Jeb Bush is a supporter. Sarah Palin is a supporter. I can name all kinds of uh, university professors at Princeton and Harvard and all across the country that are supporters. So there's this huge, massive list you can see on our website of all the people who are conservatives whose names you would know who support this, right? You may not love all those guys, but these are all the people who support it. Now I'm going to go to the other side, people who are known conservatives with national names that you would know who are opposed to this, because I like to be fair. I want to give them fair billing. And on that side of the list, the nationally known names you would know, conservatives who are opposed to this, start at the very top of the list with, um, <laughs> there aren't any. There are none. There is not one. There is not one nationally known conservative figure that is opposed to the idea of calling a convention of states. There are people on the fringes who will scream and yell about it and mostly they're going to be repeating leftist talking points because they don't like the idea of us taking our country back. But I just want you to remember when you're thinking about this generally, think about all those people who support it, look at that list and wonder what do they all know? Why are they all on board? And why are they all in support of taking our country back this way? With that, thank you for having me. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.